Hello and welcome to episode 372 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly podcast of many topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and listeners, if you've been uh, listening to Retro Encounter from the very beginning, and I mean uh, spring of 2015, almost eight years ago beginning, you might remember that we did an episode of um, called Persona 4, all about Persona 4, in June of 2016. Well, it's been almost seven years, and I think that it's time to bring back a discussion on one of my favorite games because we have a fresh review of Persona 4 on RPGFan.com thanks to its recent uh, ports to modern consoles, and we have a special guest who would love nothing more than to talk about Persona 4 with us. So let's introduce the panel, starting with Wes Iliff. Hey, everybody. And from the Backlog Battle YouTube channel, Alex. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, Alex, it's going pretty well for me. Um, you were kind enough to invite me onto the Backlog Battle uh, podcast, currently on hiatus, um, uh, some years ago, and I thought it has been way too long since we talked about RPGs together, so it was time to return the favor and bring you onto my humble little podcast for that little um, RPG fan site that could. But uh, Alex and Wes, we're here to talk about Persona 4 Golden. I say specifically Golden because that is the version that uh, released worldwide on Switch, Xbox, and PlayStation consoles uh, when, when it got a PC release uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, and of course, it had a Vita release over a decade ago. Uh, Persona 4 Golden being an enhanced remaster of Persona 4, the 2008 PS2 title. That, uh, and uh, Persona has only grown in popularity since 2008. Persona 4 was one of the catalysts for its rapid rise into the uh, RPG mainstream as a mainstream as an RPG of this uh, stripe can get. Uh, so let's talk about our personal histories a little bit with Persona 4, both the OG version or the golden version, uh, starting with you, Wes. Uh, yeah, so Persona 4, I had, I had picked up Persona 3 on launch because I was a burgeoning Shin Megami Tensei fan, thanks to Nocturne at that point. Um, and I loved it so much. I was on board on day one. I went and pre-ordered Persona 4, ended up, uh, that was when I was in college. So I was able to spend a few sleepless nights just absolutely hammering through it. Um, did almost the same thing once Golden came out years later. Um, took it a little bit slower this time around when I played it for review, but it is still, um, maybe my top tier, like cast and story within a Persona game, which is a series I hold in very high regard already. Uh, what console did you play it on for the recent review? I played it on Switch. Okay, and uh, you you played it um, probably in the tail end of 2022, and the review is on RPGFan.com. It published in January. Correct. Excellent. Now, uh, Alex, same question to you. Um, when did you first encounter Persona 4, and uh, what, what are your sort of top-of-your-brain feelings on it? Okay, so the very first time I actually played Persona 4 was very close to its release, actually. At the time, I kind of became a bit estranged from RPGs in general, and I became like one of those like Call of Duty guys and stuff, you know? Like I was became a shooter dude. And kind of like right around, you know, 20, like 2008, 2009, somewhere along those lines, I kind of started discovering Atlas games and one of the very first Atlas RPGs that I got was, you know, of the time I've gotten, you know, Atlas games before was Persona 4. And particularly because like they had a art book that came with it. And so I was like, well, you know, for the same price as a regular game, like why not? And, you know, 
I got the game, started playing it, and I was just completely hooked. I was like, okay, this isn't a Final Fantasy, which was pretty much like my favorite, you know, RPG at the time. And I was like, just really fell in love with the idea of being a virtual tourist in a completely different part of the world that I have barely any sort of inkling of like what their culture was like really because obviously I don't live in Japan and it was just fantastic like all around like voice acting the music you know the graphics were the tail end of the PS2 was fantastic and yeah and ever since then I've just become a fan of Persona and kind of really brought me back to JRPGs in general. Excellent. Well, um, we have a lot of ground to cover. If uh, if it's been, you know, well over a decade since you uh, first encountered Persona 4 uh, and, you know, and only very recently um, played the Persona 4 Golden version on consoles, uh, my version of that story is uh, has been told on podcasts before. I'll, I'll give a very abridged version. I got into Persona a little bit late because I tried them on the PS1 and didn't like them. So when Persona 3 and 4 came along and they were very, very popular, I willfully ignored them. I received Persona 3 as a gift and uh, and finally got around to it in the early 2010s. Loved it. I bought Persona 4 at, off of someone on the RPGfan.com forums. That was our uh, beloved Steph Sabidlo or Dice. And uh, yeah, so I bought um, Steph's copy of Persona 4 off her, played it in... I think 2012 or 2013 and loved it so much. I immediately did a new game plus. And then a couple of years later, when I got a Vita uh, persona Four golden was one of the first things I got on that. And I beat that uh, back to back for the, uh, uh, to, to do some end game stuff and get a platinum trophy on it. I have not purchased a new copy of it yet on PC or the new consoles. It, it, it's on wish lists, multiple wish lists, but I, it, it's just because I've played it so much already. Um, I, I know I, I'll I won't have the time to devote to it immediately. So I, I'm not I have not tried the new versions of it yet. But that's why you are here, Wes and Alex, to inform my uh, my my unsullied mind. N- no joke. Persona 4 is one of my favorite games of all time. And Persona 4 Golden is not a remake or remaster that uh, may or may not be as good as the previous one. It, it, it preserves everything about the first one, and I would argue all of the changes made to Golden are positive ones. And Golden is the version that's on PC and modern consoles now, so it's un- un- unless you you know get real fancy with uh, PS2 classics on PS4, uh, <laughs> you're probably playing the Golden version nowadays and not the OG. Um, the golden version adds a couple social links, um, notably Marie and Adachi. It adds uh, some new lo- locations to visit and some new skills to learn, mostly the skills that you get from uh, from from going out on bikes or scooters with your uh, with with your classmates and uh, and going out of town to the mall. Um, it it gives you just a, a few new extra ways of uh, increasing your social stats or or um, or talk or hanging out with your friends. Uh, um, it, there are you know several substantive changes, but I would I would say they're positive. Um, but but more important than the changes from Persona 4 to Golden, uh, for both of you, the time between you first playing Persona f- uh, 4 and playing it recently has been, I don't know, neighborhood of 13 or 14 years. So uh, uh, starting with you, Alex, um, from the first time you played Persona 4 to the most recent time you've, you played Persona 4 Golden, ha- have your feelings on it changed or did you react differently to anything? I think the only reason why I reacted to it differently is because the discourse uh you know surrounding the game has kind of really evolved over time 
And rightfully so, right? Like culture and society changes. And I think what's really fascinating about it is that despite those conversations, like I still can't really associate my experience, like my entire experience with Persona 4 with like all the other discourse that's happening. So if I sound like I'm a bit disconnected from, you know, all that important conversation, that's because I feel like there's so much of me that I experienced through Persona 4. And especially given that Persona 4's theme is identity, right? That was really positive for me that trying to kind of, you know, add anything to that, regardless of how important a conversation is, kind of unintentionally kind of sullies my own self-perception. It's kind of a weird kind of thing that you even think about. So it's very philosophical. But needless to say, I discovered a lot about myself playing Persona 4 and popping that game in again and actually having played through it with my wife as well. Like, you know, nothing really changed outside of that. I still love the characters. I still love the music. I still love what goes on. And, you know, even though Persona 5 exists, I can still go back to Persona 4 Golden and find something to like and something new to discover as well. Wes, now I, I know you have for sure played it recently because uh, there's evidence on the very fine website RPGFan.com. But uh, how had uh, were you, how have your feelings on Persona Four evolved over the years from first playing it in 0809 to the present uh, 2022 2023? Mine have definitely evolved over time, both because um, context has changed. You know, the what we expect out of a modern game is very different from what it was back then. Um, as well as, you know, some of the discourse that Alex alluded to, that's, you know, we we evolve a little bit as, as a society. We see some of the things that kind of date um, a, a game or a story in a way um, that I don't think necessarily takes away from it. I mean, I still gave the game an editor's choice. I still absolutely adore the game beginning to end, you know, top to bottom. Um, but there are more interesting things to think about now that say a lot about the times that the story was originally told in. Um, not only, you know, the obvious stuff that we don't need to go into deeply here, but um, seeing those rough edges a little bit more clearly in relief, it was very easy for me to ignore all of the criticism at launch about um, dungeons being kind of, you know, bland and repetitive because I adored the game so much. I was so invested in this story. Um that I didn't really care about that. That was not what was pulling me through the game. Uh, a few years later, after I've seen the story a couple of more times, um, I, I feel that. And after I've experienced something like Persona 5, where you know a lot of these gameplay ideas have, have evolved, um, it's definitely interesting to see how things have come along since Persona 4, while still very much appreciating um, where we were back then and how good it still feels today. I'm not sure if I would call Persona 4 a personal problematic fave like, you know, uh, uh, films of Quentin Tarantino or uh, uh, um, Hollywood musicals of the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but <laughs> but, but uh, uh, that term gets thrown around a little bit here because there are parts of Persona 4 that have aged a little poorly. I, I would say most of them are just specific character elements or specific scenarios. Um, but the parts, the, the, the things about Persona 4 that it did the best the virtual tourism of a town in rural Japan, um, exploring the struggles of, uh, of, of so many very likable characters, most of whom are Japanese teenagers, um, uh, having a, a grind that is a little bit 
you know, empty dungeon corridors, but uh, has a lot of um, has a lot of fun. And, you know, seeing the numbers increase in the way that uh, that many, you know, is satisfying for many of us that enjoy RPGs in that way. Uh, And and again, I I played these games uh, eight to ten years ago, but I have I've I've thought about going back to it a lot because I I liked that those early experiences with Persona 4 so many times that even though there would be no surprises in the story it it, it feels like it would be um it, it would be comforting to go through some of those same loops again and hang out with my friends Ninaba again I I will say um I know we'll get to it but the changes made to this most recent release, while relatively minor, did help smooth over some of those rough edges for me in, in a way that I absolutely loved. Oh, sure. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about them. Uh, we, we, can, we can address it now. So aside from, uh, you know, obviously it's got a higher frame rate, it's a little bit sharper, it, it just looks better. The big thing that hit me were the more minute difficulty options. You can tweak things like how much experience and gold enemies give you and... Um, how powerful they are versus you, um, which meant that for the most part, I just played through the game with experience and gold turned up a little bit, so I didn't have to grind through the corridors quite so much. Um, I would still go through for a few quests here and there, but it felt more like a, a modern experience that doesn't expect you to grind just by those little tweaks that you can take um, that don't necessarily affect the the overall experience of the game. Yeah, we don't need to make this an episode entirely about difficulty settings in RPGs because that 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 is an an entire episode uh, discussion. But I mean, adjustable difficulty means you can satisfy the challenge hounds and satisfy the I just want to play it for the story people. So I I, I think that sounds great. Yeah, I, I appreciate anything that lets you go into the minutia a little bit and lets you tweak it because I don't I don't necessarily want it to be easier. I just want it to take a little bit less time. <laughs> Totally understand, especially since, I mean, uh, under normal circumstances, let's say you're playing with all of the meters around the middle, this can be an 80 to 100 hour game, uh, depending on how on how much exploring and chatting you do. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, too, because like I when the last time I played Persona 4 Golden, it's kind of weird because I kind of played it exactly how I played it, you know, the past two or three times that I played it. And for the record, like in my uh, fifth playthrough is happening right now <laughs> so like on the steam version so and even then i'm still playing it the exact same way you know like play, putting it on normal difficulty and kind of 100 ing every single floor every single time i come back you know i've gotten kind of gotten it to a science at this point much like when i used to play like ninja gaiden 2 for the nes where i literally would just press the buttons the exact same time exact same way as i did like years ago it's kind of crazy it's almost like muscle memory and and it's kind of nice to hear that the new difficulty settings kind of like you know make a difference for the experience and stuff and you know heaven forbid like golden already had a ton of like quality of life features that really made the game so much more accessible when compared to four like not a lot of people remember this because there have been a lot of fans that joined uh, you know, the Persona fandom with 4, but back in Persona 3, you couldn't even control your party. You know, <laughs> you, just you, you, couldn't, you couldn't even go into a menu to change your party's equipment. You had to go to the lobby of the dungeon at the center of the game and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And, some, and sometimes they would just change their own equipment without telling you, which is not, <laughs> not, not, not my favorite part of Persona 3 Fest, let me tell you. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the, the the portable version does like give you some more um, party control and unit control, and and that's the uh, version that's been 
uh, ported to modern consoles. So yeah, the, 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 the kids nowadays that, you know, started playing Persona when it was the Joker and Morgana show, they, 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 they don't know the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, just to kind of be clear here, I literally played through Persona four at one point, like after my, maybe my first or second playthrough by having the AI do everything for me. Like that's (laughs) how good I got with Persona four. Like I was just like, yeah, sure. Waste all those items. I can still survive this battle. No problem. I don't know. I had to uh, buy a lot of Dr. Salt at the uh, vending machines to keep my SP up for the for some early dungeons. I don't want my teammates using all those without my permission. I, it, funny thing about that, I never bought vending machine soda or anything like that until I played the game with my wife. And that was literally the fourth playthrough. I... I, I, I enjoy a vending machine. I've uh, uh, in an RPG. I even wrote an article about that once. So you, you bet your <laughs> ass. I, uh, I, uh, I went to the vending machines in Persona 4. Um, but OK, if we, we really don't. If we're really going to be here forever if I'm talking about the vending machines. Um, <laughs> uh, the, one thing I think that's interesting about um, the, the sort of. Well, let's say the Persona 3, uh, three 4, 5 trilogy, even though they're not really a trilogy. Uh, and. Maybe in a larger sense, uh, Atlas's rather incredible run on the PS2. They released something like seven or eight PS2 RPGs, most of which are great. Uh, we're talking about Nocturne, two Digital Devil Sagas, two Raido Kuznoho games, the two, uh, Persona 3 and 4, probably others that I'm forgetting. Um, like A lot of those had different uh, staff behind them. But Persona 3, 4, and 5 have had sort of like the, you know, their own version of, of, uh, of, of of sort of the, the Dragon Quest Trinity. Um Katsuro Hashino as the director and lead designer, Shigenori Soejima as the art supervisor and character designer, and Shoji Maguro as the music composer. And uh they were sort of the like the artistic force behind Persona 3, 4, and 5. Um from everything from theming them to specific colors to creating specific moods with uh with music and setting choices. Hashino, at least, is not going to be part of Persona 6. It's the end of this run of Persona leadership. So uh, what do we think about that? Like, um, Persona 4 has a lot of yellows. It's uh, it, it's brighter and poppier than Persona 3 or 5. Uh, and to, to, in fact, it, like, sometimes it's so cheery in its, uh, in its setting that people accuse it of being too much like, uh, you know, uh, um, scooby-doo where are you or uh or or similar like what do we think of the design choices and the art of persona 4 maybe com- if we have to compare it to other rpgs of, of its era that's fine but uh, do you think it's too it's too yellow too colorful too happy i'll take this i think like i don't think it's necessarily that bad and i think you know, the whole idea that RPGs that have world-ending disasters have to be grim is, I feel like it's it's a prevailing thought that thankfully is slowly changing, right? Um, you know, when I look at the landscape of JRPGs these days, uh, you know, or even RPGs in general, more specifically, I guess, JRPGs, you know, you see something like Tales of Arise, which has some very kind of dark themes and stuff, but it's still kind of portrayed in this you know, semi lighthearted mode with like bright colors and stuff. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It's, it's the style of the region or this, the team 
that's creating it, right? Um, I think also what I find fascinating about Persona on top of that, and you mentioned yellow, is that there are prevailing colors that serve as kind of like the blanket motifs for the games, right? Like Persona 3 is, you know, purple. And then, of course, Persona 5 is red. Who knows what Persona 6 is going to be? But also, I think Persona 4 being yellow is kind of um, more indicative of the subject matter, much like all the others in, in this case. Because, like, you know, when you think about, you know, when I think about the yellow in Persona 4, it immediately reminds me of the I identity subject matter that it talks about. And, you know, I know that there's always there's a lot of conversations about how Persona is like a, you know, like a, a Jungian philosophy and stuff. But I think like even for me, that yellow kind of really embodies that, you know, that kind of idea that Persona is, you know, is is this search for identity. And that's why, like, I, I really loved it. Um, but, you know, going back to your point, like, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that multiple flavors for multiple things is completely fine. I only ask that it makes a lot of sense for the game itself, right? Like if it's like a, a comedy game and stuff and it's like it's got realistic gore and all that, it's it's kind of jarring in that sense. Yeah, I've always thought that discussion was a little ridiculous. I, I mean, I only bring it up because it, it has maybe not dominated, but been consistent uh, through Persona 4's entire life cycle. Uh, like this game is too silly. It's not dark enough. And, 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 you know, people, you know, people of a certain age or of a certain kind always want, uh, you know, their video games to be mature or, or dark or darker in some way. Um, I mean, they also remember, this is a game about tracking down a serial murderer. So mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't exactly begin at a, from a bright and cheery angle. Uh, Wes, what are your thoughts on the, on the overall tone and color palette of Persona 4? I think it fits kind of perfectly with, with one of the ideas that I've always had about how you tell a, a story that has horror elements or suspense elements or something that's supposed to make you feel like that feeling in the pit of your stomach, that you have to have the high points in order to show the low points. And Persona 4 does that in a big way. It's got this bright poppy um, intro, especially in the golden version. Um, it's got those bright colors all over the menu. There's like this feeling of almost dancing along to the music as you're playing. Um, but that makes it so that when the really heavy stuff does happen, when certain people end up in life-threatening peril, you feel <laughs> it all the more because you have seen all of these happy moments with those characters. You have, mm -hmm. you have been through, you know, all of the ups and downs, but those very human moments so that when the more like supernatural horrifying moments come up, they hit all the harder. Um, a lot of times you get like the, the kind of streaming, um, vanity show effect where it's all serious all the time. Everything is bad. Everything is horrible. Um, and, and you're supposed to take it seriously, but, um, you're left wondering, like, what is it even like when these people are happy? Like, what are they fighting for? Like, what better life is there for them? Um, whereas in, in something like Persona 4, you see that brightness, you see the happiness, um, and it makes the darkness feel like all the more stark when it comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's something that you see in not just video games, but in, but in film, like, like, uh, like even the, the, the darkest thrillers or noir movies will have jokes because yeah i mean you need to have the light balance the dark to make the light seem cheerier and the dark seem scarier That's and essential uh, storytelling yeah, yeah exactly and um, i mean I, I mentioned this before how going back to persona 4 will feel like revisiting inaba and seeing all my friends a lot of this game is you know hanging out with your friends in the summer and and splitting a watermelon open or uh, going out shopping for uh, for a picnic before your you, you go on your school trip, 
and um and and uh, or just hanging out at home uh like studying with your friends and your cousin and your uncle and it, it, there's like the, the slice of life aspects to persona 4 um like again it contributes to the virtual tourism feeling contributes to the sense of place of where it is that uh that that you do that in the daytime and go out trying to solve a, a murder mystery at night with your uh with your you know supernatural uh stands uh from doing battle for you it, it, it's it, it it creates a vibe that's that's sort of unique to the Persona series and maybe also JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. But uh, <laughs> wanted to make we, sure we that one didn't fly under. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't, we're not. We don't need to go. Or 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 uh, or maybe maybe Scryed for uh, fans of uh, Adult Swim of the mid two thousands. Can I actually chime in real quick? Um, are we allowed to actually talk about spoilers in this episode? We we can. Um, I would like to maybe not talk about the exact identity of the culprit until the very end, so we can give of a course. warning. But uh, but yeah, we can. I, I I I mean, people know that I spoil the hell out of everything on this on this podcast. So <laughs> if you're uh, so anything up to the end, I think we can uh, talk about without warning. But um, I, I would like to hold off the identity of the killer and final boss. Sure, totally. I wasn't even going to mention that because I just want to address like what Wes was talking about when, you know, when he said something along the lines of like somebody important basically gets like put in peril. And I was just thinking to myself and and I wanted to field this question to both of you. How insidious is it that for that person, you had to see them every single day at the end of the day, all of a sudden maybe the later half of the game, they're just completely gone. Heartbreaking. <laughs> like, <laughs> legitimately bums me out when I go through that section, even today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is, yeah, it, it's gut-wrenching. That, um, they create the sweetest little girl in video game history, Nanako Dojima, and she is just so charming and sweet and likable, and every character that interacts with her loves her, and then for her life to be put in danger very directly like, like I, I think any player of the game that gets to the november zone where uh that part of the story happens is is just like gripping their controller uh, ready to break it in half it's like oh i'm going into that dungeon and getting nanako to safety right the hell now like it's it, it's a very uh, uh, I, I would say i would say it's a powerful feeling or it's a it, it definitely um it, it, the game's a little emotionally manipulative at how good it is at, at, <laughs> at having you fall in love with Nanako and then just have an incredible amount of rage directed at Namatami and others. Yeah. And and to to kind of add to this and stuff, it's it, what's actually really so fascinating about Persona 4 and how it embodies the slice of life is that to me, like it proved that a slice of life kind of game design can be very thoughtful when it comes to like imputing specific feelings towards yourself, right? Like I, when I played Persona 4 originally, there was no way that you can actually save the game for the first hour of the game. No way. So the whole part in Golden where you get off of you know, your car and then walk around in town and stuff. They added that for Golden because a lot of people were complaining that literally that whole hour you have to watch it and not be able to skip it on the PS2 version or you're not saving the game at all, which is really crazy. But my counter argument to this is that because they kind of force you to go through this and trudge through that section, they've kind of 
forcefully slowed down the pace of the game dramatically. And, and the reason why they're doing that is because they want you to feel like you're in a provincial town when things are much slower. Like you guys have probably encountered so many people who say like if you're in a city like L.A. or New York, time moves really quickly because, you know, that's just the pace of the city. But when you go to the countryside, everything's laid back, everything's slow, and, and which is why I get why people complain about that part. But to me, I was like, you know, really enjoying that whole part. And and the reason why I bring that up is because the whole idea of at the end of the day, Nanako greeting you and saying, hi, big bro. Welcome home, big bro. Literally every single day you hear it. Welcome home, big bro. Welcome home, big bro. And then all of a sudden silence. And then you hear the music. You're just like, oh, this is horrible. I have yeah. to save Nanako now. And and just last thing, I, a friend of mine recently started playing through the game again. And literally, she got to the point where she had to save Nanako. And she literally could not stop playing the game because she felt in her heart of hearts, she had to save Nanako today. My my only advice when uh, um, people play Persona 4 for the first time is uh, when you get to December 3rd, check a guide and make sure you get those dialogue trees right. because the the uh i mean if you get everything right then the game continues and the investigation continues if you get it wrong then nanako passes away and you get a game over and that's something <laughs> i and that's something i don't want anyone to ever experience cannot deal with yeah. that absolutely Ooh. not so it's, it's, it's like i'm not going to give you any context just december 3rd mark it in your in just keep that in your brain uh trust me you want to get everything right on december 3rd but and also december 3rd in persona 3 is when um, the harbinger of Nyx tells you that the world is going to end. So mm -hmm. December 3rd, for some reason, it's a, a big day uh, in per, per, in the Persona games. Is this Hashino's <laughs> birthday or something? I don't know. <laughs> and, you know. And you know, Persona 2 Innocent Sin does take place in the uh, in, in the Grand Cross in 1999, which I think was but and and but there is snow happening so i'm not mm -hmm. sure if it's supposed to be in in fall or winter maybe persona 2 is december 3rd is, is what i'm trying I, to say I, here i i think i get it i get it i think i know why it's december 3rd it's when the game awards happen oh you've okay. hurt my soul <laughs> <laughs> you you got my hopes up and dashed them so expertly <laughs> it, it always happens around that time so why not right Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I I was I I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about 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 that. But I'm glad I was able to make everybody just be speechless by that one comment. <laughs> just, just drop us. I am ready to move on though. Uh, one thing that I think that uh, Persona Four does well with its slice of life elements that some other games don't do as well. Uh, I'm. You know, I'm, I'm going to call out a game that I don't love here, so I apologize if I sound dismissive all of a sudden. Shenmue 1 and 2 for the Dreamcast are interesting, uh, influential games for, for certain. And there's a lot of mundane elements to them. Like uh, in Shenmue, uh, you, you know, have a part-time job, you work uh, the, in the docks with, and operate a forklift. There's a lot of sort of languid, slow-paced elements to uh, Shenmue that are very deliberate. And to a degree, that's true of Persona 4 as well. Like you're in this small town with a limited number of things to do. And there is a repetitive element because like for large portions of the game, you're going to school every day and listening and listening to teachers lectures and then deciding what to do with your free time after class. And 
you know, there is a slow pace to that, that at the end, the, the time sort of does go a wasting for parts of persona four. The difference though, is that persona four, you know, it, they, they give you the carrot on a stick for almost all of it there, no matter what you do in persona four, uh, it will tie into the dungeon crashing part of the game, like uh, uh, hanging out at the at a at the library and reading books will increase your stats a little bit. Hanging out with your friends will increase one of the social links, which is you know tied to one of the major arcana of a tarot deck. And uh, and the the better your so your social link rankings, the more powerful demons called personas that you can summon in battle. So like there's a, there's a reward or at least some substance attached to every mundane action that you do in the slice of life portion of persona four. And it, it, that's also true of persona three, but I think persona four was better about rewards and variety of stuff to do. And, uh, and, and just did it, it hit, it, it just absolutely hit for me. Like I loved that, um, that the two systems of, uh, of of the of hanging out during the day and um f battling demons during the night um they fed into each other that is just a like a chef's chef kissing the tips of their fingers uh design equilibrium yeah it's it's kind of interesting how the social link system kind of grew from even three as well right like in three there were even uh party members that you couldn't really do social links with and then when four happened it's just like well how much time you got? <laughs> you know, like, how about the entire town? Um, and I, and to your point, I really love the fact that they designed social links in such a way that it also benefits you in other places, right? And what I usually, and how I actually described this was um, incentivizing character development, right? Because a lot of people sometimes they're like, oh, you know, I'm gameplay focused and stuff. I'm gonna go focus on things to min-max, but literally they baked in the gameplay elements into um, the incentivization factors of like raising social links to a specific level. And I thought that was a stroke of genius by doing that. Naturally, not every game should have social links that do this, but you know, that's one of the things that made me fell in love with Persona 4. And really like that one element got me back into JRPGs in a big way, just because it's, it's kind of like, Oh, twist my arm, why don't you? Character development. Oh, geez. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's kind of brilliant, honestly. One of the things that I love in an RPG that I need out of any RPG that I play is a constant sense of progression. I always love, this is why I love, you know, when equipment changes how you look, whether it's weapons, armor, whatever, like it feels like, okay, something's changing. I'm getting that feedback that something is happening. Um, whether it's, you know, getting experience points, level ups happening quickly, getting new characters and something like Suikoden. Um, anything that gives you that constant sense of progression feels good. And Persona does this amazing job of making sure that every moment you're getting that little like lizard brain reward, like something's improving one year, one of your social stats is improving or your ability to create personas is getting a little bit better or um, you're, you're progressing a quest out in the real world. There are all kinds of things that all kind of feed back into one or the other so that progressing one thing never feels like, well, this is only progressing in this one little sectioned off portion of the game. It's not like, okay, uh, this is benefiting, you know, the, the card mini game, but that card mini game is never going to touch the rest of the game. It's like, no, if you, if you level up in, in some mini game, um, 
that's going to affect the rest of the game. Uh, card mini game was a bad example. I just got FF8 on the brain. <laughs> um, you could have said fishing mini game, and it would have applied to about uh, 25 RPGs. Yes, j- just that came out in 2008. Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of what what makes me so addicted to this. Normally, uh, you have too many different disparate gameplay uh, um, mechanics or or, or methods in in a game and each one of them feels underbaked but no they're all fitting together so even if one did feel underbaked it still feels like it's feeding into whatever your favorite one is exactly and listeners i hope we haven't under explained this a little bit but uh but but like the, the daytime activities balanced with um go jumping into a television to hunt a serial murderer uh, maybe we should talk about the persona 4 story a little bit um uh, the main character who's called yu narakami in uh in, in later Persona 4 media, uh, visit, is you know sent to live uh, in the tiny town of Inaba for one year with his uncle Dojima, and um, and and his cousin Nanako. Uh, there he you know is he's the new kid in school. Um, he makes a couple friends uh, fairly early, but then notices a strange phenomenon with the, the television in his room. Um, there are two mysterious murders that happen a couple days apart, right when you arrive, uh, with the with the two victims being somehow strung up on the tops of buildings. Uh, but then when uh, when when you notice the mysterious TV thing, you uh, you and some friends go to the d- local department store, jump in through a large screen TV and discover a world there. That's definitely the locations of uh, of where those two women were murdered. So you you realize that, oh, these people were murdered because someone discovered this TV world, trapped them in there. And after they passed away because they were overcome by their uh, by by their their shadows, the the parts of them that uh, that they hate existing. Their shadows overcame them and killed them and then sort of spat them out of the TV. So uh, one by one, uh, people are abducted and put into the TV. And you and your friends are the only group that realize that it's a serial murderer doing this uh, for unclear reasons. And if they remain in the TV for too long, they die. So uh, you and your friends, one by one, uh, like... Uh, save the abducted people. The abducted people usually are your friends from school <laughs> that uh, then sort of join your investigation team after they uh, after their rescue. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, but uh, at, at one point, there's a uh, murder suspect in the Mitsuo who does not join your team afterwards. Thank goodness uh, that that uh, enters the TV realm. Eventually, your uh, your cousin Nanako is threatened and put into the TV, and you have to rescue her from there. And that and that's when you know everyone uh, had an emotional awakening, uh, as we discussed earlier. Uh, and it culminates in you sort of um, figure like figuring out the larger uh, the larger scheme in play and challenging the the true mastermind behind the first two murders. Um, but before we go into that, I want to talk about the central characters. One thing I think is brilliant about Persona 4's uh, uh, narrative design is that because every one of those kidnapping scenarios I talk about is that is someone's kidnapped, you uh, go into the TV to rescue them, and they're being confronted by their shadow, which is, again, a, a concept by the psychologist Carl Jung, which is the part of you that you do not wish existed but exists. The victim is being uh, confronted by their shadow, and if they deny the shadow and scream at it, you're not part of me, then the shadow becomes much stronger and the person's life is immediately in danger, and, that, and that's the boss fight of that part of the dungeon. Uh, but basically, with every character arc here, you... Like, uh, there's a character that seems that they're one way on the surface when you first meet them, 
and before they're kidnapped. Then when you rescue them, you learn a dark secret of them, or at least a part of them that they don't want to share. You help them overcome that shadow literally by defeating it, and then that shadow transforms. Once they accept that shad the shadows that are part of them and you defeat the boss, the shadow transforms into their persona, and most of the time, this is not true for Mitsuo, <laughs> uh, that person joins your team. So you get a miniature character arc of someone overcoming a part of them that they hate and then turning it into a strength. And then after they join their team, they are available as a social link. And again, social links are optional portions of Persona 4, although I recommend you do as many as you can, where you basically hang out with a friend or an acquaintance and learn all about them and uh, and sort of get their life story and have a, a, a minor story scenario play out. And uh, and and each uh, social link, I think there's um, there's like between 20 and 22 of them. So, so some of them are sort of automatic. Some of them are optional. Some of them automatically go with the story. And, and you basically have these mini character arcs, uh, optional ones, after the rescue arc so the game has you like do these uh see these character turns and and uh uh with, with each of your major party members and then you get more story out of those same characters by doing their social link it th this is an extremely character driven game and because you have a choice of social links and which characters you want to hang out with the most there's some uh, variance to it. It is possible to get every pot, every single social link in one playthrough, but that's challenging, and you have to do some very specific things. Um, it's this character-driven story with so many great arcs, with the core of the story, like the critical path of the story, also going deep into um, not counting the main character, uh, seven really, really likable teenage weirdos, or six likable teenage weirdos and a bear. So uh, with, with all of that said, uh, that was an overlong explanation, and I apologize. Um, who's one of your favorite social links? It can be a main character or it can be a, a side character. And, and, and why did you like them? Why did you choose to hang out with them when you uh, played Persona 4 most recently? The, the one character that I always come back to is Rise. And yes, I'm not exactly a Japanese idol here. Come on, I'm just, you know, a content creator on YouTube. But it's like, even when I was young... I love these tropes of these super successful people, you know, like as depicted in media, having this kind of side to them that they kind of have to repress, you know, so that they don't leave themselves vulnerable. And I feel as though a lot of persona, in addition to identity, is also about vulnerability. And for a celebrity like her to kind of almost become a shut-in, which is the complete opposite of like her personality in every single situation that she is depicted in, was just so fascinating to watch, right? And and of course, it brought me so much joy for her to feel like that a weight has been lifted when she finally joined you know, the investigation team and really embraced who she really was apart from the celebrity. Because I feel like even though a lot of us don't consider ourselves as celebrities in our own right, you know, every single day, there's always a mask that we're kind of wearing depending on like, you know, who we're talking to or who we're interacting with, right? Like we have a different mask that we have with our families. We have a different mask that we have with our friends, our coworkers, et cetera. And, be and just even with that metaphor, metaphor alone, excuse me, it then doesn't make Rise situation any less relatable than the rest of the the party, you know? And 
and of course, you know, her dungeon is literally a strip club and she's, you know, she's there and, you know, just kind of gyrating and stuff, but that's even beside the point. Like, and, and I also think that the, the fact that she's the one that replaces Teddy as like your radar, so to speak, it's, it also speaks to, I think like this almost hidden empathy that he had, that she has, you know, towards the rest of the crew that is exemplified by, you know, her role within that investigation team. And, you know, and once that finally blossoms and stuff and you realize what kind of person she is, it's just an absolutely, like, it's just an absolutely like, you know, breathtaking experience. And every single time I just see that and stuff, like I always like, you know, puts a smile on my face. Y yeah. Uh, I mean, she's also represented by the lovers arcana. So like, I think that um, her, her love and her empathy is how she's able to like feel the presence of all the monsters in every dungeon and become your navigator after she joins. But I, I think that, but her love is also twisted in a way because um, I, I mean, her, her dungeon that you explore, as you mentioned before, is a strip club or mm -hmm. like, a, you know, a weird shadowy demon strip club. And her, her shadow is, is gyrating and like a stripper when you first encounter it. And I think that like, basically Risa is experiencing burnout. She mm -hmm. has been an, an idol. She's on the rise in her success. Um, but she is like, is worried that um, I, I, like she got, some, she, she probably got some emails from creeps. Uh, she probably <laughs> is, is worried that like that, that uh, you, you know, she can't get married anymore if like, because of, of all of the mm -hmm. nature of the dancing that she does in her personal performances. So she abruptly quits and retires to live with her grandma in, in Inaba. But, um, but but the fact yeah. that that shadow is a real part of her, uh, she worries that that means she's some kind of slut. But but really, it's like no, it's like R Risa just loves performing and loves being an idol. And uh, but like the the negative, some negative feedback and some exhaustion just had her mind go to a very bad place about what being an idol means and sort of like saving her and having her join your team like she becomes way more bubbly and excited to be an idol again than when you first meet her at that tofu shop where she's is just not interested in in being reset anymore reset being her idol name mm -hmm. and, and to kind of really relate like her situation to not just like myself but also like streamers and influencers and content creators out there i think you know just speaking for myself it's very difficult to try to be vulnerable you know to up uh, to thousands of people you know out there and i think you know again speaking for myself like we get those death threats we get the bad comments on our youtube videos and social media and everything there's no if you want to be in this industry you, there's no clear way to turn that off unless you actually leave twitter or youtube or whatever in which case that's no longer you know, like a career or a journey of a career or some such. And, you know, it, and it's a question that I struggle with a lot. It's like how much of that vulnerability is going to make me, you know, look weak, you know, is my authority going to get wrested away from me if I'm too vulnerable, you know, and, and, and I think like, that's such an interesting thing about like Risa is that like, she's such a multifaceted character that it could very well apply to not just you know, like a celebrity kind of situation or even an influencer type of situation, but also like just to anybody who feels the need to change the way that they act around people, you know? 
Well, I mean, if you want to be more vulnerable in your videos or streams, the obvious solution is to gyrate more. I mean, I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think that's the only conclusion we can draw from uh, the, from the text of Persona 4. Which I, I do want to ask, like, so you mentioned that that's kind of like a part of them, which is true. But has there ever been explicitly said that it's it it is like a representation of them or is it like an external perspective of how other people see them? Because it's, it's never said explicitly, um, but but that shadow, which is, you know, a uh, basically a stripper version of, of Rise that is uh, promising people on the Midnight Channel television to take it all off. That is at least something inside Rise that she views of herself and dislikes. It, it, it's, it's possible that those aren't her exact feelings, but um, she views her love of performing and, and conflates it with the, you know, the, 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 the sort of worst, uh, worst, maybe more sexual parts of performing, but it, it's never said exactly um, wh whether that is a, a, for, forgive my use of this adjective, if that's her, a naked truth or just her perception of that part of herself, hmm. it's, it's a little, it's a little vague, but, uh, th that's how I interpret it is that, um, like she hates that she, she loves performing when, some people react to idol performances in a really gross manner because you, you do confront us an idol stalker at one point um, uh, just before she's kidnapped. So we know that that Risa at least experiences uh, negative fan interactions of that of that kind. But it's it's a, I, I am uh, editorializing a little bit when I uh, when I'm, you know, talking about Risa's character in that way. It's it's uh, some of it is up to interpretation. Um, with these characters and how they interact with their shadows, including uh, with the sexuality and gender identity of several of your main characters. Well, not not several, two two of them for sure. Um, uh, Kanji is a uh, is outwardly a a hyper masculine uh, delinquent, and uh, and his shadow that you confront is uh, you know his dungeon is a bathhouse, and his and his shadow is a um, is sort of a uh, a, a a like a, a flagrant um negative view of a homosexual man and does that and 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 also kanji's um so so kanji's questioning his masculinity and possibly also his sexuality does that mean that kanji is for sure gay or bi um and is and hates that part of himself or fears that part of himself or is kanji straight but parts of his personality like how he likes to make clothes and how he's attracted to naoto who he believes is uh is 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 a is a full uh assigned male at birth uh, uh or is that is he so is is kanji gay or confused or neither or it, like there are multiple ways to interpret that part of kanji so i don't think their uh, persona 4 gives necessarily hard and fast answers to all of these questions but uh, the fact that it goes to these places and gives us these character arcs is i think impressive even though i wish there are some things that they handled a little better with a little bit more grace. I'm, I'm sure both of you know some of the parts I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to talk about Kanji some more because he's probably my favorite character. Um, uh, like, I, I love this part of him. He, uh, he is outwardly uh, a violent, tough guy, um, but he was bullied as a child because he liked to play with dolls and make clothes. And so he overcompensates with his masculinity, especially since there's a there's one scene that is a canon part of the game where he mentioned that when his dad passed away when he was young, he said he said, hey, be a strong man for your mom, son, 
or a word, or a word similar to that. And so that and Kanji interpreted that in in maybe maybe not the wrong way, but or like like I'm sure Kanji's dad was meaning well, but Kanji sort of overcompensates with that and gets into fights and uh, and hides the part of his personality that likes making clothes and decorating things uh, because he's he's worried that sounds too feminine. He would and he was bullied for that as a child. But I love that. Kanji's arc is him acknowledging that part of himself and uh and in his social link after you recruit him uh that arc is uh is you know like he makes some little dolls uh for some for for some children and uh and and they thank him uh for it and he sort of embraces the part of him that loves crafting and hobbies that he perceives as being or at least once perceived as being too feminine um i i love kanji i don't necessarily identify with him because I'm, I'm not really much of a big tough guy and i'm not much of a uh you know of a, of a crafter either <laughs> but uh it, it, it's maybe my favorite individual character arc in the in the whole game he's um i, I love kanji there's not there's not it's not a mistake that i drafted him in the first round of our persona <laughs> draft from uh from a couple of years ago but uh, that's Risei and Kanji. Uh, Wes, do you have a main character or a social link you'd like to break down a little bit for us? Uh, part of me is tempted to talk about Nanako a little bit, but she's more she's more someone that you learn to love for the sen- for the sake of payoff later than someone who has her own, you know, realized character arc because she's a child. I mean, children are constantly evolving, and as such, are it's hard to give a compelling character arc to them. Um, whereas, she does have a full social link, though. She does. She, uh, yeah, yeah. You um, you help her sort of acknowledge uh, the the um her deceased mother. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's heavy as it is. Um, and there is a lot to be said about how wonderful Nanako is as a character, and and how striking uh that character art can be when you're when you've you know dealt with grief yourself, especially it hits um all the harder. Um, but the one, the one that's like kind of most interesting to me nowadays is one of my favorites when I first played the game was Yosuke. Um, one, I'm in love with kind of a lovable loser and two, um, they really drive home the whole, like, this is kind of your best friend throughout all of this. And they're the one by your side. They're the reliable one, um, which is an archetype that I really love, but Yosuke is battling so many insecurities. Um, you know, the idea that, that. He's looked down upon because he's the son of the owner of this giant um, mega mart that moved in. Um, the idea that he's always being compared wantingly to to other people around him. Um, even just like frustrations with the opposite sex, like all of these things build up. Um, and it's someone that that like I could really feel this is my best friend as a 20 year old. And it's something that now, in my late 30s, I look and say, yeah, that was my best friend as a 20-year-old. It's interesting to go back there because I can still kind of feel that kind of character and understand where they're coming from, even though that's so distant from the life that I live nowadays. It still feels like a very honest portrayal of that. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a sucker for someone who is, has a lot of things stacked against them or dealing with the deepest self-doubt they've ever had to deal with um, just absolutely um, odd stacked against them, but still has to come through in the end, regardless. Um, that's something, you know, I'll watch that in a million different configurations, a million different ways. And, and I think Yosuke is kind of the strongest best friend type character, maybe in the whole series uh, at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like at, at least 
I mean, geez, I, I haven't played enough of Persona 1 to have a great idea of this, but all of the other ones give you sort of a a a uh, a, a male best friend character of sorts. I, I would argue it's 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 June in Persona 2, but we don't need to uh, go too deep into Persona 2. But they yeah. and, and and um and it's probably easy to compare Yosuke to Junpei from three or Ryuji from five. But I, I agree with you. This is this is a great male friendship between the the main character and Yosuke because because Yosuke is insecure. He's resentful. He's a bit of a dweeb. He's clumsy. The very first time you see him, he crashes his bicycle into a trash can and <laughs> becomes and becomes stuck in it. Um, like, you know, like 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 uh, Zoro and One Piece stuck in a chimney. Um, Speaking my but, language. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we, we, we've established, Wes, that you and I are almost the same person and have never been seen in the same place. Technically, it's kind of distressing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Common Rider Geats after we record. Um, Perfect. But but the like Ryosuke's a dweeb and and he's a little bit unlikable sometimes but that just makes him feel a little bit real it's like oh yeah, yeah um you you had that friend in middle school or high school that uh I, i'm not I, I won't say was homophobic or racist but you know just 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 didn't all just said the wrong thing sometimes and and you had to like you had to give him the business about it or uh th- things like that it, it um it, it and in his uh social link after uh after the beginning of the game like uh you you sort of help yosuke get through some of his uh demons and eventually he asks you to f- uh to to fight each other which you do and for for some reason that makes you closer as friends uh but it, it's a very interesting representation representation of a male friendship and i think that chie and yukiko are a really interesting representation of a female friendship because chie feels like that she's not feminine enough and she always has to protect Yukiko and Yukiko sort of hates that she's been placed in this uh in this like pr- in this like princess like aura and doesn't and doesn't want uh to do exactly what her family expects her to do and so they like have these not really they don't really dislike each other but they uh have these things about each other and are sort of jealous of the other one in a small specific way but they love each other in in a way i i just think that Yosuke and the main character and Chie and Yukiko are just really g- cool representations of a male friendship and a female friendship. And I think, you know, to kind of add to that, if you've played the game multiple times over the years, encountering those same characters, even though you know what's going to happen, does still feel like you're returning to people that you knew. And I think that's just kind of speaks to the quality of the writing and the, you know, the kind of characterizations that they decided to kind of impute on these characters. You know, like I remember playing, um, you know, the game with my wife and stuff. And of course, she, you know, you know, that was this was her first experience playing the game. But for me internally, like in my mind, I'm just like, well, you know, I'm back, Yosuke, or I'm I'm back, guys. <laughs> you know, it's almost like I never left. I just, you know, when I left that train, I'm just coming back to that train, and everything's back. You know, <laughs> that's why I have been, especially recently with the remakes coming out, I've been feeling the pull to return to uh, these games, to get a new copy probably on a, on my Switch and, re- and uh, play this again, because I, I feel like it will be re- like seeing my old friends again, like, like, like you're like you're uh, rewatching a favorite television show that you've seen multiple times. It's like, I just want to hang out with with with, with these people, with these people that I've loved for years again. 
that appeals to me more than re-experiencing, you know, uh, uh, getting my Hierophant social link up to 10 so I can summon Koryu the Golden Dragon again. Like, like there's some comfort to, re- to re-experiencing <laughs> some gameplay mechanics, uh, but like, like spending time with these characters and the way that they get, present the narratives to you with these uh, kidnap rescue arcs and these social links just feels very powerful. Even though, uh, you know, this clearly isn't an RPG because you don't get to design the main character. And that's, that's, that's you know, <laughs> a very weird specific thing that I think we you mentioned before we hit record. But we, we've talked about sort of how the story goes. Uh, and we if there's plenty of characters we didn't talk about. We'll be here all day if we, you know, decide to go through every social link uh, one through 20 or zero through 21. But um, when you reach the end game, you uh, rescue Nanako, you continue your investigation. You realize that Namatame was a red herring, and he is the person that threw Yukiko and Kanji and Risei and Naoto uh, into the into the TV, but but was but did not do that for the first two victims because in fact he um he was in love and in a relationship with uh w- with the first victim and didn't know the second victim. Uh, but you have to w- wonder well if it wasn't Namatame then who did that? And uh, okay, here's the spoiler point, listeners. Uh, you you probably want to. Skip the rest of the podcast until about five minutes from the end. If you don't want uh, Persona 4 spoiled for you, I'll give you uh, five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. The truth is that Adachi, uh, your your uncle Dojima's detective partner, uh, is the person that that, that, um, threw both of those women into the TV. The first one by accident because she wouldn't pay him attention when he he made advances on her. And then uh, when he... uh, accidentally shoved her into the TV and saw what happened. Uh, he did the same for a, uh, a high school student that, uh, that, that discovered uh, the first victim's body. And, and again, he did it because he uh, is a control freak, is a, is a sadist. He only beca- became a detective originally so he could have, a, gu- so he could have a, a gun license, which is hard to get in Japan. And uh, the turn for when you discover it's Sadachi, uh, that's the mastermind, and you chase him into the TV. He he makes like a visible character transformation, where he goes from being the sort of bumbling assistant to Dojima to a like a a, a, a psychopathic killer. And there is even a a, uh, a story route in Persona Four where if you became Adachi's friend with the hunger social link, um, instead of accusing him, you can achu- you can choose to cover up for him and get a you know the sort of dark twisted ending trophy. <laughs> <laughs> uh from um for that part of the game but but in in most playthroughs of the game you confront adachi in his uh portion of the tv world and uh and and that seems to be the end of the case but uh, there's more that comes after but uh before that uh what are our thoughts on adachi as the central villain for the huge majority of persona 4 we we did a whole episode on this a couple of years ago it's, it's called the persona 4 killer i think we Recorded it in 2019, but uh, we can give our uh, uh, ourselves a miniature version of that episode right now. Should have expected it when they cast Johnny Young Bosch. He was going to have a dual role kind of thing. <laughs> well, okay. To be fair, I, I, I they did the dual role thing in Persona Three and Four. So um, this is probably what you're alluding to, Wes. But uh, um, oh, what's what's the guy's name? Who who's uh, Yosuke's voice actor? Uh, Yuri Lowenthal, yeah. Yuri Lowenthal is the voice of the Persona 3 main character and of Nix's avatar. And uh, Johnny Youngbosch is the voice of the Persona 4 main character and Adachi. So they, they they teased that a little bit and somehow did not bring back that trope for Persona 5. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, we maybe we should have seen it coming. I mean, it, it, you can see all the clues uh, after the, the fact. Yeah, after the fact, pretty. Uh, oh, oh, God, no, 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 no. Get your snowman out of this podcast immediately. <laughs> no snowmen until until January. In in my Persona Four, but uh, oh my God, you're, that that, you're that movie. You know the, the the snowman book wasn't even that bad. It's it's a it's a normal thriller, but the the movie is just the worst. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I I think that it's not super obvious from the beginning if you're going in cold on Adachi, but it, it's easy to see it after the fact. But um. I, I I think that they they do a pretty good job of building the reveal, or, or I should I should say building suspension to the reveal, uh, or or am I just a big dummy and it was obvious from the beginning? You can set me straight here. No, I think you're on the money. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember like the situations that led me to guess it was Adachi and stuff. And I can't really tell you for the life of me, like, you know, that first moment, it was just like, it felt to me that I know a lot of these other people just through their social links, you know, including Dojima, right? That it would be unlikely that would be anybody in my social links, at least. And and we're talking about Persona 4 here, right? Because Golden did add the Adachi social link, which, you know, we've talked about already. So at that time, I was just like, well, I'm looking at this list. It can't be the shopkeeper, like, you know, that's selling all the accessories. It can't be this person. Can't be that. Can't be any social link. Therefore, process of elimination, Adachi. I I had a similar reaction. Like, I sort of, uh, Nauto very clearly tells you, well, the killer has to be this, this, and this. And so I sort of went down the list. And when I got to Adachi, I'm like, huh, I guess Adachi fits. And and I and so like I think you get I I I didn't know this until after the fact, but you get three guesses before you officially fail that uh, dialogue puzzle. And I you know when I guessed Adachi, it it, it worked out. But um, I I think that you know the fandom really likes Adachi. I think some parts of the fandom get a little bit too weird about him. But uh, I, I my favorite part of it is the transformation angle. Uh, like the, the how he sort of goes from being this bumbling goofball to this like like sort of smiling joker that that just uh thinks everything is useless and he's the smartest person in the room it really uh he come it, it makes it very clear how despicable he his attitude is and chasing after him is all the more satisfying cuz he and again um it was Namatame that did most of the kidnapping over the events of Persona 4 Adachi's just manipulated a a a, a grieving man into 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 almost killing your beloved cousin. A very nicely hateable character, and, like, the events leading up to you having to say, wait, no, there's something more to this, it's not just Namatame, feel, like, suitably chaotic. Like, when you're, you essentially at one point have to tell everyone to, like, shut up, slow down, hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, um, that that's the December th- 3rd uh, dialogue that you have to be very, very careful in navigating. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know, I that scene is always the one that stands out to me. It's, like, where you have to okay, everyone's celebrating, but something's not right in my, my head. Yeah, right no, now. no. Well, you're, you're, you're celebrating, but um, about half of your friends are like, should we just take Namatame and throw him in the TV now? And, <laughs> and, have, and, have, and, uh, and, and have him be the final victim? But, and, 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 <laughs> That's I, a dark I don't, turn. Yeah, I don't remember exactly yeah. who says what, but I, I think it was like, 
I I I think like uh, is it like Naoto and Kanji and maybe uh and and maybe uh, uh Yosuke are like should we just throw them in there and then like Yukiko and Risa are like listen to yourselves but uh mm-hmm. but it like like uh like it, basically it's just as Wes says you um the main character has to like wait slow down this doesn't like we don't know everything yet. Mm-hmm. And you have to talk your friends into not killing Namatame in cold blood. Yeah, yeah <laughs> which it, is I, that, that's a chilling moment for real. Yeah, I remember Yosuke is the one that was like really pushy about it. You know, like it's you know, and then everybody else is just kind of like, is this is this right? You know, and I think it that that's like you know that kind of attitude like obviously like adds fuel to the fire of you know Yosuke's attitude and stuff. But it's like. It's it's also to be expected. He's a very emotional kind of guy, right? And he's he's driven by by a lot of the stuff that that's happened to him. And you know, he's kind of hoping that you know, as your best friend, which is again another manipulative kind of thing, <laughs> he'd back his decision. You know, at that point, which is why you know you had to like say no like four or five times or something like that. And uh, I mean, I totally agree with both of you. Adachi is a very hateable villain. Uh, it's it's an effective twist. You're by the end, you're really determined to shut him down. He turns into a, some kind of crazy fog monster at the end. Uh, again, the, the uh, two of the major themes in Persona Four being um, identity and that of truth, or the light of truth shining through the fog of uh, of, um, of of doubt. Um, and so the, the uh, Dachi turns into a fog monster of, of sorts when you fight him. But uh, he's not the final final villain. Um, in the epilogue, you uh, go and talk to all your friends and uh, and all of your social links, and have and you can you know roll, go straight to credits, or you can sort of hang out with your friends one last time and try to figure out the the last couple missing puzzle pieces of the mystery, which are basically how did the main character Adachi and Namatame uh, get the ability to go into the TV world and what is the TV world. And the answer to those questions is Izanami. Um, the main character's uh, starting persona is Izanagi, who is sort of a Japanese creation god. And uh, Izanami is a Japanese destruction god of sorts. They are uh, they were husband and wife in sort of the you know a traditional creation myth in in uh, in Japanese folklore. Uh, so it, for the, the the main character to be represented by Izanagi and the uh, final boss to be Izanami is is um. A, a certain po- there's a certain poetry to that but izanami takes a human form of a gas station attendant and when adachi namatame and the main character all entered uh around the same time like uh she uh, izanami that is uh briefly shook the sh- shakes each of their hands because she sort of wanted to give this access to the tv world to three different people one full of hope one full of despair and one full of emptiness uh, Adachi being empty, uh, the main character being full of hope, and Namatami being full of despair because his uh, his career was completely tanked because of the exposed affair with the uh, 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 with the announcer who becomes the first victim, uh, and and sort of like so her her plan was to just prove that humans are like are you know practice fatalism and are self destructive in a way, which is kind of the whole uh, uh, Nyarlathotep versus Philemon co- conflict of Personas one one and two. Uh, although Philemon and Nyarlathotep are are not in Persona Four, at least, at least uh, not clearly in Persona Four. Sorry if I'm uh, getting a little bit too into the deep lore here, but uh, so so the you realize that Izanami it was a goddess who sort of wants to prove humanity that humanity is um is 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 self destructive, 
and you have to use all of the hope and truth that you have um that you have been building in yourself for the entire game to defeat her in a final dungeon and uh the game even has what i call a final fantasy 4 moment uh where sort of your uh your your teammates um fall one by one but then come back one by one to inspire you to deal the final blow in a way and that's uh you know where uh you know, you know basically the power of friendship uh um leads you to victory but what do we think of izanami as this this final encounter to sort of put a bow on everything that happens in inaba for this uh for a very weird year i think the uh the persona games so often they st- especially since Persona 3, ostensibly start about um, a more human problem. Um, You have a more human villain, but eventually evolves to being more like folklore is the villain, you know? Um, Each one of these unveil little bits and pieces that that dive deeper into mythology and folklore being like the overarching um, kind of unknowable dread that set off all of these events in motion. And I mean, that fits perfectly with my storytelling <laughs> preferences. Um, I love that it doesn't really negate the the horror of humanity, as it were, but um, it also adds an extra wrinkle to like that human- the horror of humanity was enabled further by something else that we can't necessarily understand. Like, that's actually a very interesting question because like, quite honestly, like when... I jumped into Persona 4. I didn't jump into Persona, uh, you know, with 3 and stuff like that. Like, I actually started with Part 1. I never really thought that there was, like, a sort of overarching story about, like, the celestial beings and stuff that that was happening kind of, like, in the background. And it was only until, like, I spoke to a friend of mine maybe two or three years ago and, and, you know, talking about Persona 5 where I was really surprised to hear him actually talk about, like, how, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that you know, the enemy of Persona 5 is going to be this, you know, Elder God or whatever the heck it was. And it's like, you know, I kind of like question him. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, did you not notice this? is? It's like, it's almost as if like, it's an additional subtext for really hardcore fans to like really enjoy and and kind of like appreciate the, the games even more. And I think for me, when I think about my experience with the game, it makes a lot of sense that a, you know, kind of powerful being is responsible for giving all these people powers and stuff. Like if the buck stopped at like, oh, Adachi just made it or something like that, I would probably be super disappointed because it's like, there's no way, you know? Um, and there's also like a long history of gods, you know, in jrpg lore and history to begin with like i remember you know playing final fantasy one and not realizing a lot of the enemies there are actually based off of mythology and lore you know it wasn't until like a few years later i'm like oh wow okay that's that's cool um mind you i was like what is it like eight or nine years old so i didn't know much and no internet um to be to to add that caveat but yeah i think like it (laughs) it adds to um you know, it just adds to the game, I feel. And I think, you know, thanks to my friend for that matter, like I'm now kind of taking a look closer to see the kinds of choices of villains for each of the SMT slash uh, Persona games that I've played, because I do find that truly fascinating to see that there's a through line, um, you know, across the games and such. Yeah, I mean, the SMT games, uh, even more obviously, are clashes between gods of different folklores. Like, there's even, uh, 
basically all of the SMT mainline games have factions of different demons or gods that have a shared mythology somewhat uh, that, you know, that, you know, uh, basically uh, battle each other. By the end of Shin Megami Tensei five, you have to choose, you know, to decide with, uh, <laughs> with, with, uh, with angels or Japanese or, uh, or Japanese demons or a chaotic third faction. Um, but in, in Persona four, uh, I, I think that basically Izanami wants to prove that humans will give in to despair and prefer the fog of ignorance to the light of truth and just, and try to, you know, just in, but, uh, and, and, you know, you're shining the light of truth through that fog of ignorance to, de- to defeat her. And you can, you can make similar comparisons to any of the persona games. I, I mentioned a few of them earlier in, in persona five, that, that God at the end is Yaldabaoth, who is, uh, which is not a, uh, uh, a, I, I, which I think is like a, um, a some kind of god or perhaps an angel of order, and so it's, uh, it, it, its thesis is humans crave order and don't and and don't need freedom. So I will take I will take all their freedom. But then the Persona Five cast are like, no, we're gonna break through your your uh, your prison and uh, and and uh, and let humans live free. Like is is an oversimplified version of some of what happens at the end of Persona Five. Basically, making this small conflict of a serial killer into a larger conflict of um of of like the human of 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 saving humanity from this uh from a goddess with a dim view of humanity uh is I I thought it was a good final cap, but by the end of the game you're you're so powerful the the final dungeon in Persona Four is a little bit easy because I think somewhere in the Around the halfway or two thirds mark, you you sort of get, start getting stronger faster than the dun- than the dungeons and and shadows are getting stronger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I remember I remember basically face rolling the entire uh, final dungeon the last couple times I played Persona Four, but maybe around uh, after I beat it once, I I sort of knew how to manipulate everything and just it was it, maybe I should have uh, upgraded the difficulty to hard. I, I can uh, I can do the opposite of what Wes did and uh, and you know have my have the monsters give me less experience. When I eventually play this thing, I, I think Persona Four is a pretty satisfying end game, and I, I wish that uh, I, I wish it wasn't so easy to miss because I, I, the true ending is what you want out of Persona Four. And I don't know, is there any sign, any additional signposting in the in the new version? No, not really. All right. Well, I I, I know how to get to the true ending at least, so uh, I will always tell people to check a guide at December third. And go to the food court one last time in the in the epilogue. But are are we ready for the epilogue to this episode? Or uh, hmm, well, you know, may, maybe not. Uh, uh, let's let's each of us talk talk about one. What's one project after Persona Four, influenced by Persona Four, that you would uh, recommend to a to a listener? Let's let's say uh, SMT curious, uh, because Persona Four was such a huge success that I think it paved the way for Atlas's future successes. And then Persona Five accelerated that further. Um, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'll go first to give you some time to think. Uh, uh, listeners, I urge you to uh, try the Persona Four fighting game, Persona Four Arena, and its uh, and its expansion, Arena Ultimax, because I I love 2D fighters. I uh, I talked about uh, Capcom versus SNK two a lot on a recent episode of Retro Encounter, um, but the Persona Four one. It has so much variety and is so true to what the game is that you really do feel like you're, you know, like uh, 
like 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 in a one-on-one persona duel and the, the storyline is a little ridiculous it's a it's a visual novel that can that goes for over 20 hours in the base version of of persona 4 arena but i i it's uh made by arc system works the uh guilty gear and blaze blue people is a total celebration of persona 4 in fighting game form i love watching high level matches of persona 4 um arena on youtube and, and have many times in the past but it's it's uh it's not nearly as popular a game now as it was in in say the 20 14 to 16 range um but uh alex or west do you either you have a uh uh have a persona 4 spinoff or future atlas project that you think uh is worth checking out influenced by persona 4 hmm um i think for me like i really you know i'm kind of gonna follow your lead here because i think people should check out persona 4 dancing all night and you know, yes, it's a rhythm game. and But, you know, what separates this game from a lot of other games is that, well, for one, it's canonical. <laughs> it's actually part of the canon. And it does continue the story of, you know, these characters and stuff. So if you were really bummed when you beat Persona 4 Golden that you wouldn't see these guys ever again, well, guess what? The, the story continues, whether it's the fighting game or the dancing game. And I should probably point out that the dancing game is made by the Hatsune Miku development team. So, you know, it has its a range of difficulty spikes in there somewhere. Um, it's also generously voice acted. And there are, you know, there are characters that were recast, unfortunately, because it, like Rise has been recast like three times, like throughout the entire history of Persona 4. There have been three different actors playing that role, I feel. And, you know, of course, Chie is different, but we'll not go there. And yeah, Chie changed a couple of times. And uh, Troy Baker is Kanji in original Persona 4 and uh, and Arena and the new content for Golden. But he's replaced by Matt Mercer in Persona Q and Persona 4 Dancing All Night. But, but Matt, <laughs> yeah. Matt, Matt Mercer got his own Persona character later when he's the uh, uh, when he voices Yusuke in Persona 5. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like, you know, it's it's definitely more than just like a dancing game it's definitely like a great extension of the story you know kind of you know it's it's just a really fun romp like it's another great excuse to actually just hang out with you know the team the investigation team and such for me it requires some some homework of playing persona 5 uh which you probably should it's a very good evolution of the the formula um whether or not the story is better you know might vary person to person but I, i think i know where this is going yeah because you know me and people oh, yeah. who have listened for a long time also know me um, and might be aware of my love of uh, Koei Tecmo and, and, you know, specifically Omega Force's Dynasty Warriors franchise. Mm. Um, there is a canonical sequel to Persona 5 called Persona 5 Strikers, which is a, a maybe the most ambitious Dynasty Warriors crossover that's been made. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really makes the most attempt to really adapt the um mechanics of persona into kind of the dynasty warriors framework um it's got its successes and failures but i think it is kind of a good introduction to both series in a way (laughs) and it tells you know a a canonical continuation of persona 5 but not persona 5 royal which is figure that one out (laughs) um they might have been under under development around the same time they were we just got uh strikers way later than it came out in japan so I think mm-hmm. we got Royal a little bit before Persona 5 Strikers. Um, but uh, it's 
if you like to experience, you know, different type of games, if you want to experience more action RPG or something a little closer Warriors and tr- teach you why that series has more to offer than you think it does, not a bad way to to engage with both series at once. But again, it'll spoil the ever-loving heck out of Persona 5, so uh, <laughs> don't skip ahead. And, and to your point, too, like what I love about Persona 5 Strikers is it kind of addresses you know, some of the problems of Persona 5, right? Like, you know, having, um, you know, a specific character just be like the last person you get, there's not a lot of time to kind of dwell on their feelings. But, yeah. you know, in Strikers, you encounter that character and they actually really dedicate a good amount of time into addressing their feelings. And I really appreciated that about Strikers, you know, on top of all the good things that you said, you know? More time with a wonderful cast. Like, nothing bad about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I played the bejesus out of Persona 4 Dancing all night. I, uh, I, I completed all three of the Persona dancing games because I, I can be a bit of a fiend for, for rhythm games now and then. But I have not played Strikers. I have a copy of it. So it's ready to go loaded up in uh, my external hard drive full of PS4 games on my PS5. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, uh, but I have not gone there yet. But, you know, I, I do enjoy Persona 5 a lot. Maybe it's time to... Maybe even before I finally revisit Persona 4, I can try out Persona 5S. But uh, even though the, the this chapter, so to speak, of um, the Persona saga is over, because we, we know Katsura Hashino is not uh, going to be part of Persona 6, um, he's still with uh, Sega Atlas, because uh, uh, presumably uh, Project ReFantasy still exists. And I'm sure that someone is working on Persona 6 somewhere. And it's been uh, six or seven years since Persona 5 uh, Japanese release. So I, I, I'm not sure if we're going to see more Persona 4 uh, in the near future because, you know, it's again, it uh, it, it just got its se- second remade port <laughs> uh, <laughs> last year. But I, I think that this game was so successful and so influential that when more uh, Atlas RPGs happen, um, we'll, you'll be able to see the Persona 4 DNA here. But uh, we've gone for a, a full 90 minutes on this podcast. Uh, thank you so much, listeners, for putting up with us on this um, Persona 4 sequel discussion. Uh, just We just got, wanted to get a fresh panel talking about uh, one of our favorite RPGs, especially since uh, it had a relatively recent re-release and more people will have played Persona 4 than ever by the time this comes out. Uh, but also thank you, Alex, for being our uh, special guest. We don't have a lot of um, outside RPG fan guests on Retro Encounter, but I, I, uh, but you have such a um, uh, such an encouraging and celebratory voice when you discuss RPGs on the Backlog Battle channel that I that you are a perfect fit for uh, appearing on an RPG fan po- podcast. And I wanted to return the favor after you generously invited me on your podcast a couple of years ago. So uh, thank you so much, Alex. Um, uh, and uh, listeners, you should all, you should check out Alex's uh, YouTube channel. Backlog Battle uh, has multiple updates a week that uh, cover RPG news, RPG reviews, and um, and other RPG uh, uh, RPG topics, kind of like how RPG fans podcasts do, but in a very cleanly edited video format. <laughs> well, thank you for that. That was quite the glowing endorsement right there. I've been a huge fan of RPG fan for you know for many many years, ever since I started. Uh, you know, even on YouTube and stuff, you know, I'm friends with Steph, of course, you know, we've, we've collaborated with many things on this channel and, you know, and, and that's kind of like my thing is like, I love video games because they bring us the joy and happiness that, you know, that no other 
piece of media kind of gives us like in this kind of interactive manner. And, you know, the channel is all about that, like just good vibes, great RPGs, great reviews, and a feeling that regardless of what you watch, whether it's critical or not, you're going to leave with a smile on your face. So definitely go check that out. You can find me on youtube.com slash backlog battle. And thank you once again for inviting me to talk about practically like my favorite RPG of all time. This has been an absolute treat. Well, thank you, Alex. And Wes, I'm not letting you get out of here without some compliments either. You and I have been on podcasts many times together, but uh, I don't think we've ever really just hacked out a, a persona talk together. So um, thank you so much for uh, for the excellent review you wrote uh, earlier this year for RPG Fan. And, and thank you for agreeing to... Um, to appear on the podcast here because I I I, uh, I I I I think that three is a good size for a podcast discussion and we got three perspectives that both love Persona Four and are appropriately critical of Persona Four, um, but mostly just talk about uh, why we love this game and and so thank you for setting aside the time and uh, and energy for this, Wes. Oh, love to do it. But uh, listeners, um, I have to thank you again. Uh, the three of us love Persona 4 and love talking about Persona 4, and uh, but we wouldn't be able to do this at all if you didn't love listening to us talk about RPGs. Uh, so let's talk about the future of RPG Fan a little bit. Uh, but later this month, we are doing two episodes on Lost Odyssey, that Xbox 360 RPG that has had um, slightly confusing availability over the years. I'm sure that uh, Wes and Peter and others will discuss, uh, will discuss that when the time comes. Isn't that right, Wes? Oh, absolutely. You're not going to be able to get me to stop talking about Lost Odyssey. <laughs> yeah, that's one that's missed me over the years, mostly because I only had an Xbox 360 for about nine months when one of my friends uh, moved to Germany um, but <laughs> and, uh, and, and only came back for it later. But uh, I, I, I will probably ep- edit those episodes and learn all about Lost Odyssey in the process. But listeners, if you want to um, reach out to us and talk about Persona 4, Lost Odyssey, um, uh, ex- exactly what the deal is with uh, Yosuke's resentment with uh, everyone around him, the best way to reach out to us is to email retro at RPGFan.com. RPGFan is also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, YouTube, Twitch, always called either RPGFan or RPGFan.com. Uh, RPGFan also, uh, even though you're RPGFan, YouTube is not nearly as well curated as the Backlog Battle YouTube channel. Uh, RPG Fan also has <laughs> also has a, a shop, rpgfan.com slash shop, hosted by T Public. You can get uh, uh, merchandise such as apparel, coffee mugs, uh, phone cases, keychains, emblazoned with the RPG Fan Emerald Shield. That's another great way to support the website. Uh, and also we have two other fine podcasts, Random Encounter every two weeks about uh, RPG current events and Rhythm, Count- Rhythm Encounter every other two weeks about RPG music. You can leave reviews for Random Rhythm and Retro Encounter on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, however you prefer to leave feedback. We love feedback. But if you want to leave us feedback as individuals, and not as a podcast. Uh, let's share our social media and other places to find us with you, the listeners, uh, starting with you, Wes. Uh, if you want to talk to me, you can find me on Twitter at Wes Iliff. And now, Alex, although I think I know one of the places you're going to share it. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash my backlog battle because backlog battle's been taken. That's really frustrating. Um, but you can always find me on our brand new Discord as well at dsc.gg slash backlog battle. And of course, youtube.com slash backlog battle. You'll find me there more, more likely like on YouTube. I do respond to people's comments. I'm not one of those YouTubers that don't read comments. So chances are you're going to get something from me if you post a comment. 
Oh boy, that you're a brave soul reading the YouTube comments. <laughs> uh, those those can be a minefield. But uh, uh, I, I, listeners, I am not on YouTube. I am probably easiest to find on a different minefield called Twitter. Uh, that is, uh, I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time. At Evoker for Dogs other times. That's a Persona Three reference. And on RPG Fans Discord, I am called Monsoon Mike. So, um, you know what, uh, Alex West, I'm glad that we reached out to the truth today. So, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you. Good night. And good luck.